Hey, everybody, just a quick note. David and I don't get together too often in person, but we will be doing that very shortly in one of the best places, one of the most fun places for that to happen, New Orleans, Louisiana. Just a little over a week from right now, a week from when this episode gets released, we both arrive there on the 20th at night, and then we will be there through the 24th of February. We are going to be at the Central APA, American Philosophical Association. We are doing a panel presentation. Uh, It's an invited symposium on public philosophy chaired by former friend of the show, or even still friend of the show, Eddie Namias. Um, Barry Lamb will be on this panel or in this symposium from Hi-Fi Nation and also a guest appearance on our show. Uh, Regina Rini and also Eleanor Gordon-Smith will be there. This is the Wednesday afternoon, 1 p.m. session at the Astor Crown Plaza in New Orleans, in the French Quarter, on the border, like by Canal Street. And um, I don't know how many people are going to be at this session, but if you are going to be there and you want to sneak in to see our session, or you even have registered and you can go in there legitimately, we'd love to see you. If not, uh, hit us up if you're in town, if you're in New Orleans at that time. We can't promise anything because we don't know our schedule, but it would definitely be fun to meet up with some of you for a drink or to see some music or whatever. You can email us at the Very Bad Wizards email or at our personal emails. Yeah, so hope to see some of you there. We're staying somewhere in the Marigny, um, uh, February 21st, Wednesday through Saturday. All right, let's get back to the episode. Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. This life's hard, man, but it's harder if you're stupid. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, today we're going to talk about the movie burning, total masterpiece, and maybe the Murakami story, barn burning that it's based on. Tomorrow I'm teaching Murakami's sleep in my intro class for the first time and Borges's garden of forking paths in my <laughs> seminar. That's just too many reality-bending, metaphysical, hallucinatory, mindfuck texts to keep straight in my head at the same time. If you see me falling into unreality at some point, will you please try to pull me back? I will give you Ariadne's thread, Pisa's thread, <laughs> so that you can find your way back to the real reality. Just don't pop up one more stack. Like, we never know what will happen. <laughs> I think that Minotaur is going to get me by the end. <laughs>
Have you just thought to make the podcast and your classes just coextensive, <laughs> as the philosophers like to say? <laughs> this was this massive convergence, like, and not like a, definitely too much. Like today, my my brain feels fried. My head was swimming. <laughs> like I was prepping the main part of a lot of these today, and they're all so great, but yeah. but they're all mind fuckery. Yeah. Totally. So I did listen to our episode on sleep, though, just to kind of remind myself some of the... How was it? It was really... I thought it was one of our best episodes that I've, you know, listened to in a while. I thought it was really good. So I was was happy to see that. You know, when people ask us what our favorite episodes are, we've admitted that, like, that's almost a question that we can't answer because, like, we haven't listened to most of them in so long. And then the ones that we thought were great, like, back then, we just sort of kept thinking they're great. Like, it's not like we've gone back and assessed them all. So every time we hear one of our own and like it, we should make note of it. Yeah, I tried (laughs) I I probably do because I kind of do more crossover probably than you do. Like I do sometimes go back and listen to it. Like I did it for Pierre Menard, not Pierre Menard, uh, sorry, uh, Funes. See, it's all like it's all collapsing. (laughs) Everything is collapsing. Fiction, reality. There's a lot of episodes, man. Boundaries are being (laughs) elided or whatever. So it should be an interesting discussion. I do love burning though. Holy shit. It's so good. So good. Yeah, there's a lot lot to talk about. Let's just get through the annoying opening segment. Yes. So we have an annoying (laughs) opening segment that is about what annoys us. What's the deal segment? Um, (laughs) Now, we've done a Pet Peeves opening before, right? I think so. I meant to go back and look at what I said for those. Oh, yeah. I wouldn't want to repeat myself. Luckily, there's a new tool. That would be funny, (laughs) but it wouldn't surprise me. Um, There's so many things. One thing also, like, the reason why we can't tell people what the good episodes are is often we can't even tell people, like, if we've done that (laughs) episode or not. Like, you know, was Memento good? We don't remember. Did we actually do Memento already? Don't know. Who knows? Yeah. (laughs) All right. So we've each come with three pet peeves that we just need to get off our chest. We need to get this out. It's been bugging us that we're keeping it in. We're repressing it. This is our opportunity to just let it out and find the base in our hearts. So what's your first one? You know, it should come as no surprise that uh, a couple of mine come from Twitter. (laughs) And the first one is the one that I texted you about randomly the other day. So it seems to be that certain a certain corner of, I don't know what who these people are, what to call them. Maybe it's like the rationalists, but I couldn't help but think that they were the nouveau smart, a mm-hmm. term that you coined, who have started using the phrase updating my priors <laughs> or some version of that, like which is a Bayesian term, you know, from Bayesian statistics. Right. To just mean like I changed my mind right. or I got new information. I'm changing my mind sounds... a little bit about like my <laughs> yeah, the baseline right. views on this. Yeah, It's so stupid and douchey and it just smacks of that sort of like, let me use bigger words to sound smarter than I am for a group of people who clearly think of themselves as very smart. So if you do this, I'm sorry. I think it's a douchey habit. You should stop <laughs> doing it. Spoken by a true frequentist. <laughs> That's exactly what a frequentist would say. It's it's, it's true. But I don't talk about like uh, running T-tests on my beliefs, you know? Right. (laughs) But what is it? You know, is it it the rationalist, whatever the people are that call themselves that? Or is it just something that's like oozed into the collective like nouveau smart Twitter sphere? I don't know exactly what it is. And it's true that uh, updating the priors has leaked in to like the regular 
uh, way you talk to normal people. It's it's also very, I think, influenced by like the Nate Silver 538 approach to <laughs> right. politics and to because right. that's what like he would start using that kind of terminology to talk about political issues and and then it just kind of leaks out from there to Vox and like Matt Iglesias and then yeah. it just spills out onto all the nouveau smart you know younger people that's my <laughs> which is itself a, such a douchey term to have coined nouveau smart <laughs> yeah, no, yeah it's so, so condescending so perfect this. though it's like one of my great uh, and I, I'm so mad that I never like wrote the whatever New York Times, yes. New Yorker, because it would also be about a lot of the people who are reading it and they would become better. They would turn <laughs> to a less douchey path, but wasn't to be. So, OK, the, the unholy alliance of money ballers and uh, rationalists who are trying to be Bayesians because that's the cool new thing to be in, yeah. uh, in social science. I would do actually an episode on Bayesianism versus frequentism. I remember proposing that to you and Yoel at one point and <laughs> you both said that was the most boring debate like, in all of academia. <laughs> but I don't understand how it could be because it seems fundamental but I also believe you that it is. Well, you know, just keep asking. All right. Maybe I'll change my maybe I'll update my priors on that. All right. My first one is very much a what's the deal with that we have to rate everything all the time, that you cannot buy the simplest thing or have the simplest interaction with anybody without somebody then emailing you, asking you to rate it and fill out a survey about how good it was <laughs> or how you feel about it. I was like in a weak moment a few days ago, my computer said like my warranty is going to expire. Do I want to extend it? And it, I was like, you know what? Like, it's kind of acting up, so it wouldn't be the worst idea. So I go on, fill out an online form where, you know, I give my credit card and get the package of the extension. And then I get an email like 20 minutes later asking me to rate that experience of like just filling out a form online and giving them like $70 or $80 or whatever the fuck it was. Like, how are you asking me to rate that? Like, it's just like, it used to be, you know, you stay at a hotel and you put a rating on TripAdvisor. It's, it's like a lot of these trajectories where that was actually good. It was like, oh, I'm going to this new city and I don't know where to stay. Like, I'm going to go to TripAdvisor and get some good tips about where to stay. That was like 10 years ago, 15 years ago. And then slowly and, and like gradually, everything had to get rated it's the metric started getting gamed like it's just it's nonstop, and i don't get it like i don't get who had the idea that it would be important to get my rating about this online form that i filled out to extend a warranty for a year like that's like what kind of mind comes up with that as a thing that they even have the idea of offering i think we just talked about what kind of mind <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. Right. Just more data. Just get, we have to get more data. As you and I both know, if it can't be measured, it doesn't exist, Tamler. Yeah. Do you want your opinion to not exist? Do you want your Perhaps, views yes. to just not exist? I want it to not <laughs> exist in like, like, except in my own head. Right. Okay. So I got like a couple things about that. When I was in grad school, I may have said this like way back in the day, but like when I was in grad school, I worked for an alumnus of Yale's PhD program who had decided to go into like leave academia and go into like a market research business of his own. Super nice guy. Like it was a one man shop. I think he made decent money. Jeff Wack, if you're out there, what's up? But he was so not like that. He had such a sober view of what these stats are, which made him, I think, a really good person to hire. 
But every once in a while, he would just have to like give up arguing with clients because I'll give you an example. He worked with a lot of nonprofits. So we had these reports that we would have to do where he would send out a survey to patients who had been in the hospital. And then based on the like one to 10 rating of how your patient experience was, they would use that to determine which of the wards or whatever you call the units in the hospital, which of those people got bonuses by the end of the year. And what sucked is that sometimes it was literally a difference of like 8.98 to like 8.89. You know, and they would make these determinations like on the basis of these numbers. And it was just and not was a little statistically significant. No, yeah, exactly. Not not at all. Like so far to the extent from, that that's even a real ma- thing. But yes. <laughs> and, and he would try to tell them, but they were just like, just give us like the, we just like, want to give it. us the means because like, it's not about <laughs> really rewarding the people who, who are the best at it. It's just about having some kind of thing algorithm tell you and give you an excuse to give this person a little more money and not that person. It's like a a way that you don't have to take responsibility for using judgment. Like all these things are attacks on judgment and agency. (laughs) They are trying to get us to a point where actual judgment and an individual person just making an evaluation is unnecessary. And also where we just making choices for ourselves. That's why Netflix is constantly asking you to rate shows and, and and like so that it can like tell you what to watch instead of you choosing what to watch. That's what all of these things are geared either geared towards or at least just resulting in. The worst is like you mentioned gaming, and so that's that's the part that like you know obviously we've we don't see a hundred percent eye to eye on what should be measured and when, but I think we've seen eye to eye about this specific part of it, like the stuff that can get gamed. I've gotten emails from customer service things like or it's like car dealers or whatever saying, please give me a ten. And if you can't, please let me know why before you in, before you submit the rating. Yeah. And it's like, really? Yeah. Like, what the fuck is the point of the rating then? You're just absolutely just gaming it, yeah. right? That said, we were just talking about uh, your letterboxed or letterboxed e, however the fuck you say it, and Goodreads. And I find it very informative to like start there, but then you read. Then yeah. you, you have- But see, yeah. that is you choosing to rate something and it's like more of a social thing of like letting people- you know and uh who know you kind of see what you like, think. You like think, it's like, like it's like I don't yeah. choose what to watch based on letterbox rating. Although I have done that with to my shame, rotten tomatoes ratings. I will choose what not to watch. Yeah, exactly. Based on those. <laughs> right. Exactly. That's that's more what it is. Actually I got for Christmas the Rotten Tomatoes game, which is kind of a fun game because you have to kind of guess the various percentages of certain movies based on either your memory or the description of them. And sometimes you get the tomato score, but you have to guess the audience score. It was actually pretty fun. Like that's kind of cool. It's it's these things are fun when they are not running things. And when they're not like, you don't have an avalanche of ratings just collapsing on you at all times. Like ranking things is fun. You know, like there is something that I think we get a kick out of with that. But then like everything, it gets perverted and into some grotesque, uh, uh, form that it is right, right now, where I'm supposed to rate the Hewlett Packard experience <laughs> of renewing my fucking warranty <laughs> online. I give your uh, pet peeve a 4.5 out of 5. <laughs> nice. That's good. <laughs> All right. What's your next one? Uh, my next one comes from Twitter as well. And again, I don't mean to offend anybody because I know good people do this, but I hate it when people take to Twitter. Well, I generally hate it when people post tweets where they're quote unquote announcing something about themselves. And they say, I'd like to announce that I'm moving to Cornell University or whatever. 
It's like, yeah, really? Are you announcing it or are you just writing a tweet and posting it to whoever might see? Like an announcement usually has some sort of like uh, import that, uh, but but that's fine. That's a Wait, career I don't choice. Get it. Like you just say, I'm excited to go to Cornell. I just got a job. Like, yeah, yeah. The I'd like to announce makes yourself sound. Oh, just sound that actual more. phrase. Just the, just the phrase. And the that. phrase that I hate really is because there's nothing wrong with sharing news. But the phrase that I hate is new paper alert in all caps, exclamation, exclamation. <laughs> and it usually has like, it's like sandwiched by the police car light emoji. Yeah. And like, they're trying to trick me into thinking that I have signed up for a service that is <laughs> supposed to be alerting me of that person's <laughs> new paper. This is all in the category of the humble brag. And I get that sometimes it's not clear how to promote your own work without sounding a, a little douchey. God knows we have to promote our podcast or else people wouldn't listen to it, I'm sure. But and rate it five stars on Apple Podcasts. And rate it five stars. That's right. <laughs> yeah. It was better than better than my the podcast. Hewlett Packard update. <laughs> yeah. um, I don't know. It's these little things that have become sort of a, a very common language of self-promotion that just they grind my gears. You know it grinds your gears. Yeah. <laughs> grinds New gears. rule. Don't say I'd like to announce. New pet peeves just dropped. <laughs> new, new pet peeves just dropped. Yeah. I, it's been a while since I would have to decide like how I'm going to, uh, <laughs> to talk about like a new paper. Yeah. So I don't want to fully judge, but you know. <laughs> Um, yeah, that's a good one. I have a Twitter one. This isn't my one, but my only Twitter one that really just annoys me is the fixed it for you where you take some oh, yeah, like, there's a quote <laughs> yeah. and they do yeah. some Photoshop thing where they do that and then they go fixed it for you. There's something so or cross smug. out the word. Yeah. And I yeah. usually agree with the political point being made or at least a lot of the time, but I still just, it makes my skin crawl. I hate that. What about the Saturday evening post guy announcing something in the middle of the, of the town hall meeting? You know oh that? yeah. 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 Like with the Norman beer. Rockwell. Yeah. Like, like the, yeah. 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 <laughs> I, I actually don't mind memes a lot of the time, which is not like, yeah. I, I don't know why. It seems like something that would get on my nerves, but a lot of the time There's, it doesn't. But, there, but you're right. There's something that's different about uh, doing a meme for the sake of a meme and yeah. something like, yeah. These are all I imagine like speaking ticks, but for Twitter. All right. I'll make this fast for my second one. My second one is faculty governance. <laughs> Just that whole <laughs> That whole idea. Like, who the fuck? I what kind so, <laughs> I so agree. I, I don't think that I would have thought it a granular enough thing to, to call it a pet peeve, more like a giant moral disagreement. But yes, yeah. dude. I know, I agree. Yeah. This is like more kind of coming from the core of like ethically who I am. Um, but <laughs> whoever thought that faculty like should spend time and would be good at creating policies and working on bylaws and anything that's just not academic, that's not involved somehow with like helping students and whatever research thing that has to get done by us. But like the others, like it's just it's awful. And it brings out a I think the, the most annoying parts of people when you're in these committees and B, it also just out of the woodwork, this like class of kind of closet academic bureaucrats, an orgy of distinctions yeah. and hypotheticals that task forces and like all this stuff just seems like it was a bad idea that that's out of control and we can't rein it in anymore. It's just it's done. Right. I 
don't think that there's anything wrong with faculty having a say. And I think that there is there's a trajectory for that kind of mm-hmm. thing. Like if you want to become a dean. Um, and it's as totally a fine. Member, I like respect those people. I love them. Yeah. It's a hard job. And um, in principle, having people give their opinion about what they think would be good for the students, also great. In an but it's exactly that. what setting. Yeah. Like a dean meets with the faculty yeah. members or like, you know, you during your faculty meeting, the chair says, hey, what do you guys think about this? Yeah. I'm going to talk to the dean. It's exactly what you say, that in practice, the people who have the most at stake for these policies are the ones who usually would never volunteer to be on these sorts of committees. And so what you're getting is this like selection bias of people who sometimes are, it's like a church basement town meeting where people go to complain about, you know, the loitering that they saw this week and the price of the newspaper at the corner stand or whatever that kind of thing right. and and it's like i, I just want to like cut myself yeah exactly <laughs> i feel like all the molecules in my body are rebelling <laughs> and rejecting what's happening and just like if you're not on board with the whole approach like i sometimes think i'm being punked that this like it, <laughs> I know. you can't really be arguing about this issue like this yeah. is like some sort of joke is this some sort of thing to test you know like stanford prison experiment like stanford like committee experiment or something like that like when will i break yeah Yeah. and it is also the case that i know enough about administration to know that for many of these things all they're doing is giving a placebo to faculty to right give right so it's not like real things turn on what the faculty senate submits to the no which is good like i'm glad that they're (laughs) (laughs) but then they like they shouldn't leave it up to us in for real but then also like they shouldn't do it period like but there's enough people i mean i think it's that same thing of it's a way of people not using their discretion and judgment. And in this case, the people in power. And I think it can be from very good intentions often, you know, like they don't want to be the, the monarch. But I think that's part of the job. You know, I don't like when we teach our classes, we don't have a committee of students decide like what's going to be on the syllabus. It's like but that thinking is job. infectious. I know. Like some students come with that attitude a little bit. Yeah. And look, there are bad professors and there's terrible decisions made by administration. Absolutely. But hopefully (laughs) hopefully it's clear what we mean. (laughs) Yes, right. Like it's just like whether this is actually an improvement or a huge waste of time. And like there's some faculty that I know who are pulled into these kinds of things who are awesome teachers and awesome mentors of students. And like they are not just trying to go on the golf course and teach their courses and like they really care about the job and then they get pulled into this stuff and it just takes them away from what they're really good at and what's actually important. Right. It never ends up like Mr. Smith goes to Washington or something. (laughs) We're like the the one professor who cares. That's the policy. No, I mean like, Yeah. yeah, maybe I'm sure we'll get some angry emails about this and you can tell us the exceptions, but I will, I do think they will be exceptions that prove the rule. (laughs) All right. All right, I'm going to go like yours was so high level and this is crashing down to the most low level, stupid, says more about me than about anybody else. (laughs) But there is one thing in meetings, whether they're Zoom meetings or in-person meetings that I like make me after a while want to, you know, stab people. And it's people who can't be bothered to turn off this fucking sound on their computer or on their phone. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) That sound 
It says it's because it says something to me about you that like we're in a hour and a half long faculty meeting and you can't be bothered to turn off your alerts because you're so fucking important. You didn't know when your like HP rate, your warranty experience email came into your inbox and I have to hear your shitty default sound. It's unbelievable. Like, I feel like you have to like turn it on too, because I don't remember turning <laughs> off. I guess I don't like really use Outlook. That that one's, I think, I'm I'm, I'm pretty sure it's a Mac sound, yeah. but it's default. And you know, if you have alerts on at all, but you know, turn your shit off. Holy shit! It's usually I older people. I don't. Like. I hate. Like, it drives me crazy when like Jen or Eliza have their ringers on in the oh, house. I, yeah. Like, just turn, gotten, everyone yeah. turn. Like, I haven't had my ringer on in like six months probably and like right. only like when crazy I'm expecting that a, shut. a call or something like who has their ringer on you have to be like psychotic <laughs> to have your ringer on yeah it's psychotic and psychopathic <laughs> yeah <laughs> and I don't even think it's like I mean maybe it's about proving to others that you're so no, important not. but I think it's I more need to justify about it. <laughs> like yeah they've lost their minds yeah it's just one of those small things that says to me not that you really care that I know that you're getting emails but rather that you haven't bothered to think that this might be disturbing the, the meeting well maybe the this is a sign that we shouldn't be having meetings. <laughs> um, because I teach a class that has a lot of students in it, even if they don't all show up, like it's still quite a few in the lecture hall. Every single class, no matter what I say, somebody's phone goes yeah. off. And so one year a student did a hilarious thing. Since they heard me complain about it a couple of times in the beginning of the semester, they started keeping a tally of every time a phone would go off and what I would say. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> it is always like when that happens, you just have to make a quick snap judgment. Am I going to just <laughs> yeah. move on or am I'm I going to say yeah. something? And it's just like, it's annoying. Yeah. I don't say anything anymore usually unless yeah. the ringer is so weird yeah. that I like sometimes I'll mock them for their choice of like ringtone. But I also still ban electronics, sort of. I do the uh, Lori Santos thing where you have to have no phones and you have to do laptops in the back for yeah, an yeah. intro class. Yeah, that's good. All right. So my third one, I think yours are more in line with like a certain definition of pet peeves, like <laughs> whereas mine. I worked hard. I worked harder on mine than on the actual movie discussion that we're going to have. Later. Oh, great. Oh, no. <laughs> All right. So mine is something that we've certainly talked a lot about, but I think it's come to even more of a head or maybe it's like the ratings thing where it was just. It, it just kind of gradually built and built and built. But the media's obsession with universities, and I guess especially elite universities, is so out of proportion to the importance of whatever it is that they're talking about. Claudine Gay, like whether something is plagiarism, just anything that's like speech related, politics related that's going on in these universities. I, it's not that these things shouldn't be talked about. It's the proportion of like media space that they occupy in a world where there's actual terrible and important stuff going on. You know, when the whole Claudine Gay and the thing was happening, there was a, like a New York Times front page that had like six separate stories about like this happened at Harvard, this happened at Penn, like all these things. And meanwhile, there's this like 
horrific things happening in Gaza, which this is tangentially related to, or and, and like the possibility that there's a wider war that's going to be started because of all this. And yet people cannot stop talking about like whether something was plagiarism or whether something was like a discriminatory fire or whether it was like DEI, like DEI, anything DEI related. It's just constant and it's crazy. It's like, I think if you like came in from not being media infected like we are, but you were just looking at it from the outside, just objectively, I think it would be really surprising just how much people are obsessed with what goes on at universities in general, but definitely like Harvard, Yale, Penn, a little bit Cornell. Uh, Cornell is kind of yeah, the minor. We're the minor Ivy. We're yeah, like the not the real Ivy. The, yeah. I, I heard they were thinking <laughs> of kicking you out of the Ivies, actually. So. <laughs> no, absolutely. And I I know that the obsession in like that kind of media that you consume, Tamler specifically, their obsession with like the Ivies has been kind of long term. Like New York Times writes things like I've seen these metrics of the number of times Yale, Harvard, Penn, Princeton are mentioned compared to any other university. And it's like ridiculous. And I've always thought that's because there's a lot of people there that went to those universities. And so they're just like circle jerking. But now you have like the right of center people who are now using all of the like IVs as like just code for the you know Whoa. people yeah. the people that I don't like yeah. yeah who now are spilling so much ink about it too and they also and went like, to Harvard and Yale and Princeton and they also went to Harvard yeah and they yeah and they like to write about how it's it's destroying civilization yeah and and Ivy degrees are meaningless now but yeah the, if you care about universities the majority of students don't go to those universities so if you really care about what's going on in higher education then you should care more about large state schools than anything right like yeah. obviously and the funny thing is is the stuff they talk about isn't even real at the elite universities where they're realer than they are at the normal state universities where people are just going about their business taking classes and doing their work it's it's not even accurate reporting about like the levels of these disagreements. Like the whole anti-Semitism is rampant on campus. It's just not true. The you cancel culture. Nobody can invite somebody unless they you know agree that there are twenty eight genders. That's not real. Like yeah, it's all. I wish they could go to a faculty senate meeting. Everybody who writes an article about the elite Ivies should go to one of the faculty senate meetings and <laughs> held in the basement of the psych department. Last thing I wanted to. Say say about this. I I know why it happens. I I remember I had lunch with the publisher of Basic Books. This was before my book came out, uh, Why Honor Matters. And, you know, we're talking about like it's selling. And I think she already knew this was not going to be a big seller. But, you know, she was very nice. We had lunch. It was a bunch of people and we were talking and she said, here's the thing about like really having a bestseller. The way to do that, if you want any kind of like success, is you have to make rich people feel like there's something to be afraid about in the way their kids are being raised. Right. Like in the way like that's the thing that sells books. And, you know, all these people send their kids to these universities. And now if you tell them they're actually getting indoctrinated, they're actually getting, you know, poisoned. I think that's probably true. Like that's how that's what drives a lot of this stuff is rich people thinking, oh, my God, my kid goes to those schools. One of our opening segments now has to be coming up with book titles that would sell a ton of copies. Yeah. (laughs) 
The algorithms are coming for your wealthy child. (laughs) Your wealthy child is going to march with poor people in protest. Get killed by Kyle Rittenhouse. (laughs) All right. On that cheerful note, (laughs) should we get to uh, what is definitely not a cheerful movie, quite a dark movie, Burning. Uh, We'll be right back. Today's episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Let's talk about relationships for a second. There's a common misconception about relationships that they have to be easy to be right. Now, look, relationships aren't easy unless they're with your dogs. If you're having a relationship with another adult, another human being, a long relationship, it's going to be challenging, especially if you're like me, if you're always in the right. And so you have to spend all this time and energy explaining that to people. But look, sometimes the best relationships happen in the face of the biggest challenges when both people put in the work to make them great and therapy can be a place to work through the challenges you face in all of your relationships, whether with friends, your significant other, your podcast partner, or anyone. Therapy can help you learn positive coping skills, how to like get through life and all the bullshit. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself, or at least a better version of yourself. So if you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Become your own soulmate, whether you're looking for one or not. Visit BetterHelp.com slash VBW today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash VBW. Thanks to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. This is the time of the show where we like to take a moment to thank everybody for all of their support. We really appreciate it, and that's why we record one of these every time we release an episode, even though some of you skip it. Um, Hopefully you listen sometimes so you can hear our appreciation, because we really do mean it. If you want to reach out to us and talk to us, we love all of your messages. We try to get to as many as we can, um, but we read them all. Uh, you can email us at verybadwizards at gmail.com, or you can tweet to us at Tamler or at Pease or at verybadwizards. If you want to get into some arguments or have some discussions, you can go to the subreddit, reddit.com slash r slash verybadwizards. You can find us on Instagram, and we always appreciate it if you rate us on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify, and if you leave a review on Apple Podcasts. If you want to support us in more tangible ways, we also very much appreciate that. You can always uh, donate to our cause at, to keep the lights on at PayPal with a one-time donation. You can buy some swag, some t-shirts, some mugs, 
And if you want to sign up for our Patreon, um, we appreciate that as well. We love our Patreon supporters. At $1 and up per episode, you get all of the episodes ad-free and you get little compilations of beats that I've put together. At $2 and up, you get access to all of our bonus content. $2 per episode and up, you get access to our very, very large and growing back catalog of bonus episodes, including our <clears throat> Deadwood podcast, The Ambulators. Um, we're at season three now. We're excited to have started that up again. Um, if you join our $5 and up per episode tier, you get to vote on an episode topic. You also get access to a, a few other things. Our Brothers Karamazov five-part series, a couple of lectures from Tamler on Plato Symposium, some intro psych lectures from me. And at $10 and up, you get access to everything I just said, but you also get to Ask Us Anything in our monthly Ask Us Anything segment, and we will release a video of that for you. And at $2 and up, everybody gets to listen to our answers. We had fun on this last one, went pretty long, but we really uh, enjoy interacting with our listeners that way. So thank you again for all of your support, everybody. As Tamler said at the very beginning of the episode, we're going to be in New Orleans together um, by, by all means, don't no need to drive to New Orleans if you don't live anywhere close. Um, but if you happen to be there or at the conference, let us know. Um, all right, back to the episode. All right, let's get to our main segment discussion, and that is on Li Cheng Dong's 2018 film Burning, a South Korean movie. It's a movie that's based on Murakami's Barn Burning, which is a story from The Elephant Vanishes, same collection as the one that had Sleep in it. And that story, Barn Burning, is itself based on, or it takes a lot of inspiration from, a uh, Faulkner story also called Barn Burning. So it's uh, interesting in our last AUA they asked us about adaptations and what we thought about adaptations. And I hadn't even thought of burning as like a, a really interesting example of that, but it is an adaptation of an adaptation. It is a an expansion of both stories, really, kind of incorporating yeah. elements from both. Like, I'll tell you what I think of this movie. I want to know what you think first, uh, just in general. I mean, I loved it. It's beautifully shot. It's... Well, I mean, obviously it's compelling, but the look of it, the sounds of it, mm -hmm. the mystery of it. And I think this is hard to do. And maybe this is one of the things that we gravitate towards. But there's a sweet spot of ambiguity that is necessary, I think, to make a movie like this be good without being either very uh, dumb because of how like clearly meaningless <laughs> the ambiguity might make it be or just like whatever cookie cutter here's a plot here's a, a mystery here's the resolution but yeah yeah here's the resolution exactly uh and then you know the aspects of human nature that it highlights that i think are universal even though one of the things that i wish i knew more maybe had the time to do more was read a bit more about south korean culture um youth culture gender dynamics and all that stuff because i think that there's a lot of that in it but it wouldn't be a universally, I think, beloved movie if it didn't speak to a lot of the universals of the human condition. It's funny. A lot of the Park Chan-wook, Bong Joon-ho, the, these movies about these alienated, disaffected, often working class or if not working class, kind of poor South Korean young people. Like that is a big theme of a lot of these movies. Certainly true here. I mean, this is 
definitely a movie about youth alienation. There are elements that are specific to South Korea, but there is also elements that you, you can find, like if you look at ancient Greek literature or, you know, mid-century right. American fiction, like it's, this is yeah. all stuff that keeps happening over and over again. Right. Like this is the power of cinema too sometimes is just like, I just want to learn more context. Look, I think this movie, like if you told me it was the best movie of the 21st century, like not There Will Be Blood, not Mulholland Drive even, but Burning... I might not argue with you. I think it's... Wow. I, I know. Like, that's what I was thinking as I watched it yesterday and a little bit today. I loved it the first time I saw it. I remember showing it to Eliza. She loved it. And I just love it more every time I see it, which is probably now four times, something like that. I think you have outstanding, in addition to all the stuff that you said about the filmmaking, outstanding performances from all three leads. Like you said, it's beautiful, it's mysterious. I think it gets you not just questioning reality in the movie, but questioning just reality in your own life. And maybe this is because I have a lot of these things <laughs> that I'm juggling right now, but I think thematically there's so many things about illusions, reflections, and pantomime, and copies of copies. That's such a like a reverberating theme throughout the whole movie, and it's definitely one that I responded to this time. It also just has an all-time great scene, like one of the, I don't know, 50 best scenes maybe, uh, which we'll talk about when we get there. Just the light in this movie is amazing. The light is so, it's incredible. It's also just a movie about perspective. Like, it's it's a movie about our perspective as viewers, certainly the protagonist's perspective, and how we cannot break out of that. Like, I mean, I think that's one of the obvious uh, running questions is what is objective? What is something that we're making judgments about, the protagonist is? And really the answer to those things is we can't know. You know, uh, it's funny that you say that because obviously I think we both have very strong feelings about movies like this and the sort of uselessness of trying to pronounce on the objective, an objective account of what happened. But I do want to take some time in this recording to play the game. If there is an objective mystery, what do you, what where do you come down? Oh, um, totally. I think that's a good thing to do. Yeah. It's as long as you don't think, oh, I'm going to solve it. Part of the great thing about these movies is that you get to talk about it. And it makes your mind work in all of those ways. Like we so need the objective reality to be objective that we our, our minds can't help but like try really hard to spin the story. <laughs> the theorizing is the process of questioning yeah. what's going on in the yeah. movie. It's it's your way in. It's not all always the most fruitful way, but I think it is a good way. All right. Yeah. Should we just go through the movie? We don't have to talk about everything because that'll take three hours, but like we can highlight certain things that we have noted and like connect those to some of the themes that we think yeah. are central to the movie. Yeah, I like that strategy because we want to get low level. So we'll want to talk about certain scenes. It's not like we could just do high level <laughs> themes and that's it. Like, uh, so. So the, the basic plot, and, and please see this movie if you haven't. All right, so we start our protagonist, whose name is Jung Soo. He is just, I guess, somebody who delivers stuff 
from a truck. He's unloading stuff from a truck, but he sees somebody who's, I guess in South Korea, there are these dancers and they do these kind of lotteries on the street where they give out prizes. And they're young girls. They're kind of scantily clad. This one keeps kind of focusing on them. And he's not the type, uh, Jong Soo, who seems like he has a lot of women checking him out all the time. <laughs> and he, you know, he's kind of confused, as he often is in the movie. And it turns out that this is Jaime, who is a old classmate from the little town they grew up in, a small town they grew up in. And she spotted him and makes it, I guess, so that he wins a prize. And, like, she's kind of picking him up almost. It's like a huge lucky break uh, for this guy, you think. And he is like deer in the headlights, yeah. right? Like, yes, like yeah. the whole movie almost. But Yeah, I assume that she rigged it because it's a lottery with like those little spinning balls or whatever that you, they pick a number at random. And she picks the number. And I, like, I was looking at this because I cared because she hands it to the other woman yeah. and the woman reads the number. So she had to be kind of sly about this. Like she had to do some sleight of hand or yeah, something. Exactly. Like I'm sure you've focused on that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> this is not what's going to bog us down at all. <laughs> exactly. This is what I was worried about. So one of the things that's that she says, one of the first things that she says is, I got plastic surgery and I'm pretty now because he doesn't yeah. recognize her. And speaking of just what's specific to South Korea, apparently they have by far the highest rate of plastic surgery for young women. So that is yeah. not an uncommon thing. And that is kind of, a, again, a, a bit of a theme in the movie of what expectations are being put on these young women in South Korea. So, I mean, he's literally not doing anything. He's just standing there his <laughs> mouth kind of half open. And she says, let's go get a drink. And then you have what I think is the first key scene of them at this restaurant, uh, having some beers and some food. And she is giving, I don't know, like her philosophy, her yearnings. She's being very charmingly kind of fun and weird, a little of that manic pixie chick kind of yeah. energy that definitely could be annoying, but doesn't seem to be here. And he certainly doesn't seem to think it is because she's like, actually, she's interesting and she's got full of life and energy. Um, and this is where she does the pantomime peeling of the tangerine and talks about great hunger versus little hunger. So, like, I'm sure you had a lot of stuff to say about this scene. I mean, so the pantomiming, it's like, what's the quote that she says when he was like, what are you doing? And she says the key to pantomiming isn't convincing yourself that it's real, but convincing yourself. Forgetting that it's not. Forgetting that it's not. A tangerine. Yeah. And I take that as just a little heads up that things might not be what they seem. There might be some, I don't know, motivated perception going on. Because what's the difference there, right? The difference is it's kind of hard to convince yourself that something is true. But if you selectively forget some things, then that process of belief seems a lot more subjectively reliable. Like you didn't, you didn't just convince yourself that something. Right. True. You didn't just like succumb to wishful thinking. You just kind exactly. of forgot that the thing you want to be true wasn't true. She also says like, you have to feel that you want it. So it's almost like in this case, you have to like dream it into existence. Yeah. 
and she does it for a while. Like she's just talking and pretending to eat, talking, pretending to eat. Like she's, she's willing this into. Yeah. She's yeah. willing it into existence. Um, and this is the first of many things that are going to be pantomime. Actually, not even the first because like, you know, her plastic surgery, there's so many things that are being altered to look like something they're not. And I think that's, if there's a central like question in the movie, it's like, what is real and what is pantomime? Yeah. She also talks about the great hunger versus, so she says, she, <laughs> this is such a frustrating thing for Jung Soo. It's his dream girl. He's a young writer or somebody who wants to be a writer. And this kind of dream girl for a writer just emerges and all of a sudden just wants to flirt with him and have drinks with him and make him win prizes. But she's going to Africa. Like she's just about to go to Africa. And so it's always just quite a little <laughs> bit out of his grasp, although not fully, as we'll see, but a little bit. And then she talks about how there are these people there that have this, they have this distinction between the little hunger, which is just like normal desires, normal, just wanting to have food or sex Physical or whatever. Hunger, yeah. And then there's the great hunger, which is they want to understand if there's meaning to life, if there's any purpose, what we're here for, what we're supposed to do. And he almost says kind of mockingly, you're going to Africa to meet the great hunger. And she says, yes, like she's not embarrassed by it. Again, like yeah. something he's very jealous of. Like, I don't think he could he could be that open and vulnerable uh, in the way that she is right there. Yeah. And, there, you know, we'll get to this theme again, but like there is something in her openness and her freedom. I mean, saying right away when she met him that she'd gotten plastic surgery, I'm sure is something mm -hmm. most people would be unwilling to admit, no matter what the rates are. <laughs> and her just deciding to like pick up and go to Africa, like... He's enthralled at, like you said, a bit of manic uh, pixie dream girl, but also just, I think, a, a genuine attraction to the free to a free spirit that sometimes people without free spirits like are are attracted to. And I feel like I've been there, like I've been Jiangsu more often than I've been Haimi. And um, turns out that you want sometimes want free spirits, but you don't want actual free spirit. <laughs> she also just falls asleep often <laughs> and he's paying for the dinner. Happy to do that. And then when he comes back, there's just this couple making out like in the uh, table next to <laughs> them. And he just comes back and sits by her, but she's asleep. And so there's nothing he can do. Uh, right. But uh, the other thing we should say is that she asked him to take care of his cat, her cat while she's gone. Yep. And he's already a sucker. You know, he already can't already say no, even though it requires him to go to her house every... So the, another like kind of huge scene that comes up, he takes the bus. This is where he has all that stuff. And she just takes his arm in a very like free and easy way, you know, just like walking to her place. He is coming there to figure out like, okay, like what's the code to get into your house? How am I supposed to feed your cat? All of those things. And they get up to her place. I love the building where she lives. It's like a little distorted. It's it seems like it's at the like on this hill. It's hard to get a sense of like is it between two streets? Is it 
I was trying to get a sense of like what was about this building that was giving me a little bit of vertigo, but it's, it's very cool. And it's very like on a high floor. So he has to walk up a lot of steps to get there and he's kind of out of breath. And one thing I love about uh, this actor's performance is he is just awkward, like physically. From the beginning, it, just the way that he presents himself physically from the first scene, you just, it exudes it. Yes. Like he's so good at this. He's uncomfortable in his own skin, kind of staggering, hunched. He's just like, yeah, he, there, there's nothing that he does that seems smooth. I, I can relate to a bit of physical awkwardness and other kinds of awkwardness, but he's just always like this, you know? And he always seems to feel it, too. This is where we're introduced to the possible cat, the <laughs> Schrodinger's right. cat. Normally you say Schrodinger is about something else, but in this case, it is an actual cat that we don't know whether it exists or not. And and it just comes up in this scene in her apartment already because uh, the cat doesn't come out. And so Jung Soo says, like, are you sure it doesn't just exist in your imagination? Or should I just forget there isn't a cat? So he's kind of like making fun of the, like, in, in the night, like actually one of the, slickest things that he says in the whole movie maybe <laughs> right. it's kind of funny right. it's a callback it's the peak of his kind game. of prodding yeah. uh something without being mean about it and she says like you think i asked you to feed an imaginary cat like <laughs> yeah right she dismisses it right away because we're all like we're all thinking it because she can't find the cat <laughs> but that is like the movie is like what is in yeah. our imagination and what's real and what are we just forgetting isn't there and what actually is there. Then we learn that he called her ugly in middle school one time, or at least that's what she said. <laughs> that's what she <Yeah>. says. <laughs> and right. then just like essentially like has sex with him. Another one of these things where he does nothing, you know, like yeah. she is driving this almost entirely and he's just along for the ride he's very awkward clearly he doesn't even know how to put a condom on like she grabs yeah. one and puts it on for yes. him you know again another i think like even the first time i saw this i was like when he catches feelings he's gonna be like pissed that she do you sleep with all the guys like that you had all these condoms <laughs> right. or, you know you could just tell that this, <laughs> but not at yeah. this stage, at least he's, not at this stage. he's yeah. just, he's just happy. He gets so there's an interesting there. little exchange where, when he first gets there, where she says this room gets no sunlight except at this one time where there's a reflection of the sun off the tower and it comes into the yeah. room, but you have to be kind of lucky to get yeah. it. And, you know, it seems just full of some kind of metaphorical significance. One thing I asked myself watching it the second time, I think the answer is no, but I have to pose it. If this wasn't in Korean about South Koreans, would that, if you were seeing it for the first time, be like the plastic bag scene from American Beauty? <laughs> Like, would you think that was lame? And would you think that some of the Manic Pixie Dream Girl stuff was also just yeah. a little... In other words, is the distance that we have through language and through culture, does that make us less cynical about stuff like that? More forgiving yeah. of it. You know, I don't know the right answer. I think no. The difference to me is that in that scene, 
there's no comment made like the the floating plastic bag like he goes on this fucking spot like i don't remember it that well but it's just like oh it's so beautiful look at it or whatever Kill like, that it's like guy. just show don't tell yeah Kill that kid the and character this... the actor everybody <laughs> everybody involved <laughs> everybody died um and this one it's not even really that it's that beautiful like the the light beam is falling yeah. kind of in the closet like it's not like it lights up the room there is no magic moment where, you know, in the hands of a lesser director, I feel like it would have lit her face and there would be this moment of beauty. Yeah. And it's literally just a thin light beam that lands in her closet and moves across some clothes. Yeah. And by the way, you were saying about the building. I got Miyazaki vibes. Yes. Like it feels like an apartment that Miyazaki would have drawn. Yeah, yeah. I, totally. Um, because, yeah, yeah, it seems almost animated in the way that it's like curved. Um yeah. uh, in its like outlines and cozy Miyazaki is really into cozy and that room is kind of yeah. cozy you know um I also yeah. think the answer to my question is no because number one she is the young writers immature writers imagined perfect woman and that's what she would say Number one, you know, like that's the <laughs> right. kind of thing she would say, that little detail that nobody would notice, but like that she notices and appreciates, you know, like the yeah. little observation, yeah. number one. And then number two, like it's part of the theme. It's not even light. It's not even sunlight. It's reflection of sunlight, right? Yeah. It's the image right. of sunlight, uh, like the plastic surgery, like the pantomime. Yeah. So I think it really does actually work thematically with uh, what the the movie is trying to tear apart and investigate. Right. It's like uh, seeing through a mirror darkly. Yeah. Kind of. uh, when they're having sex, and I think when he climaxes the light comes in right at that <laughs> uh moment yeah, yeah. right and yeah. so that's but it's not like a big deal no and he just looks at it sort of curiously yeah. with his like with awkward his gaping face. mouth yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's he a little mouth breathy so he gets to his house here's where you get that really cold kind of pale blue light him getting to his mm -hmm. his place, going through it. And you also get that score. I don't think we've talked about the music yet, but the score is fucking phenomenal for this. And you get this like refrain of uh, a kind of bassy twang and like kind of uh, echoey cowbell and like bongos. It's really hypnotic and kind of mesmerizing. Like I meant to, I didn't have time today, but like, I'm going to pill for that soundtrack for that score. <laughs> for your beats. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you should just do volume eight of uh, <laughs> volume eight. without rhymes. Paju. And then it, it's also this, his place is right by the border, you know, the demilitarized Yeah. joint security area. And so you, you can actually hear the North Korean propaganda at times coming in on right. a loudspeaker just uh, from his place, which is this kind of farm. Yeah. It adds to the surreal vibe. Yeah. The faint sounds through that, you know, megaphony PA system, whatever they're using to blast. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of just become this background noise in this like farm town. And to use a favorite word of Very Bad Wizards, uh, it's it's liminal. Yes, that's right. <laughs> it really is sort of like, where is this guy? Where is his yeah. life? Like, he's not found his way. Which sure. side is he on? Yeah. It also sets up a, like, antagonist, protagonist kind of dynamic, too, which we're going to get, but don't have yet. We see pictures. Did you say that we see pictures of his dad? Like, we, yeah. we learned that he was in the military and stuff? Yeah, yeah. that's right. 
And yeah. we also know he told Jaime that his dad had anger issues and his mom ran away and abandoned him and his sister when they were young. And now that's pulled him into prison because he attacked, I guess, some bureaucrat that was coming to. <laughs> right. Some poor cop, I yeah. think. Like, yeah. yeah. It's not his fault. It's the fucking, it's faculty governance. <laughs> By the way, we got a little scene of Trump on the TV, you know, juxtaposing this out of the North Korean propaganda with the Trump talking about immigrants, which is also very bordery, you know? Yeah, that's right. And what did you think there was, I guess the propaganda could be thing. Did you see any other point to having Trump? It was weird to hear Trump in this movie. It was so weird. It almost took me out of it because it dates the movie perfectly, you yeah. know, like to a pretty, but Trump is talking about immigration and border control there. Yeah. And so I just took it that it was a theme of that sort of. Uh, That's right. Um, he also goes out to a van, like this beat up old, it's not a van. It's more like a pickup truck, but it's like a pickup truck from like the sixties or seventies. It looks like it's like, uh, what Clouseau drove in return of the <laughs> pink Panther when he was disguised <laughs> as like a telephone repairman. It's like a double cab thing. It's like the, the, uh, oh, fucking cars like the, but it's like a hybrid looking yeah. thing. It's like a car with an actual trailer on it. It's like an El Camino of trucks. And he doesn't like. know that it's going to start when he starts it in sleep. I don't know if you remember this, but the, the woman, the protagonist has a Honda, a beat up old Honda Civic, but it's hers. And it's like, it yeah, represents right. some kind of liberation possibility. And that's separate from like her son and her husband. This episode of Very Bad Wizards is brought to you by Factor. Factor is a meal service program that delivers meals that are ready to be eaten. All you have to do is warm them up. Healthy, nutritious, and delicious meals at your doorstep. The way that it works is you sign up and you pick from over 35 different meal options every week. So whether you're on a keto diet or a calorie smart diet, vegan, vegetarian, um, and these meals have been already pre-cooked by the chefs at Factor. All you have to do is heat them up. No preparation, no mess, just ready to eat. So you could take them on the go, take them to work, take them to school, and you can eat healthy without having to worry about all that prep. I mean, I love the meal prep service stuff where you get ingredients and you get to cook, like Green Chef that we just talked about. But honestly, I much prefer not to do all the cooking. It also has snacks, smoothies, more, has uh, a bunch of stuff to eat like throughout the day, some breakfast food, some midday snacks, and more. And Turns out the factor is actually less expensive than getting takeout. Um, and every meal has been approved by a dietitian to be as nutritious as possible and also pretty delicious. In fact, I just took, right before I started recording this, a wellness shot. They have a bunch of these wellness shots of lemon, apple, ginger, honey, turmeric. It's very yummy and I feel well already. So factor is a great solution if you're looking for fast, quality options done easily. You can get as much or as little as you need of the food. You can choose between six or 18 meals per week, and you can pause these the service and reschedule your delivery at any time. If this sounds like something that you might like, you can go to factormeals.com slash VBW50 and use code VBW50 at checkout to get 50% off. Once again, that's code VBW50 at factormeals.com 
slash VBW50 to get 50% off. Our thanks to Factor for sponsoring this episode of Very Bad Wizards. So he goes to feed the cat. Now, this cat and whether it exists or not and what's the deal with the cat is going to, we're going to go back and forth on like evidence that it's there or not. But right now, the food and water are gone. And yeah. so he has to refill the water, refill the food, and also uh, scoop out some cat shit. So let's maybe this is a good time to talk about the cat. <laughs> like, what's what's your position on the cat? It is the microcosm of like the whole the frustration maybe of the whole movie, and frustration not in a bad way, but it is. I do feel like there can't be an answer, and it's a little on the nose the Schrodinger's cat thing. I think. Uh, um, but Except that it it's is, Schrodinger's everything, like you said in the yeah, movie. Yeah, yeah. It's really Schrodinger's, yeah. like, there's probably 25 things that you could say Schrodinger's about. So there's something yeah. kind of, uh, like, on point about just having the first thing be the cat. Be the cat. Yeah. I um, think there's more evidence that the cat exists than there is that it doesn't, I guess, is where I came down. But it's like he's giving us like, here's four pieces of information. Two are that the cat doesn't exist and two are that it does. It's like almost perfectly done to keep you never firmly grounded in what otherwise is is not. I should say like this isn't a movie with like weird woo-woo vibes. Like it's not like you can tell that this is a movie where you're not firmly grounded. Here's one reason to think that the cat is real. If we're to think that it's not real, did she just go and find a litter box and put like actual cat shit before she left on her trip to convince him like that would be strange right no i know right if there wasn't really a cat like um and there was actually evidence of a cat somebody had to put it there yeah and it would have to be her right i think this is the scene it's certainly one of these scenes where he goes to the cat where he jerks off in front of the window looking at the tower where the light might come off. And I think he's trying to come when the light comes in again. I think he's trying to recreate that. Because, like, why else is he looking at the tower? Yeah, you know, I, I don't think I thought of that. Yeah, there's a vague sense that he's looking at the tower as if he were trying to recreate that moment. Yeah. Like that's part of his jerk offness. It's almost like he got conditioned to the light and now he's developed a <laughs> fetish for bounced light. Totally. <laughs> and yeah, I don't, I don't like it's, it's and we don't know. Yeah, we don't know. But I totally get why a guy like this would jerk off to in her apartment, though, right? This probably is only sexual experience. It's like it's like every fiber of his being is like, this is where I got laid. <laughs> I'm have a boner now. Like, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I agree. Although, like, I wouldn't look out the window necessarily if I was <laughs> no. doing it. Um, it cuts to like him with the, his dad's lawyer, and is this the first time we learn that he wants to be a writer? Because he tells so. the lawyer that, and the lawyer is like, "Yeah," because he says, "Like, what did you study?" Yeah. Yeah. That's right. And he says that his father was going to be like, he could have been rich, but he has these anger issues. And this is a dark theme in the movie, too, is the way we inherit stuff from our parents. And yeah. um, these kind of anger, rage issues. The dad clearly never got it under control. And because of, he could have been somebody special, according to the lawyer, but he's too yeah. stubborn. And yeah, he could have gone to Gungam. He says, and at this point, we don't, 
this kid doesn't seem like an angry kid to me. No. And we're learning this about his dad. And he just seems sweet, like the way that he's caring after the animals in the farm, uh. the way that he's going to like end up going to the neighbors and, you know, asking them to help out his father. He just looks confused and insecure. But you're, you're right. He doesn't seem angry. I love the lawyer's reaction when he says he wants to be a writer. He's like, well, <laughs> Lottie frickin' da. You <laughs> got a writer here, folks. It's like the Chris Farley thing. Uh, <laughs> now, young man, what do you want to do with your life? Uh, actually, Matt, I kind of want to be a writer. Well, Lottie frickin' da. <laughs> we got ourselves a writer here. Hey, Dad, I can't see real good. Is that Bill Shakespeare over there? You can't afford humanities in this world. Like, if you're Jiangsu, like, you can't. He's got to choose something that will actually make money. Yeah. So I think that's another takeaway from that. Right. It's like you could tell the lawyer doesn't believe that he's going to write a novel, you know. Even the way he's like interacting with the lawyer is strange. He's like he has trouble looking people in the eye. It's a really good performance of somebody who just has trouble really with all aspects of life seeming relaxed and normal. Yep. He's a fish out of water. I mean, this is a class theme that we're going to get to again, right? Where like he's, this lawyer has like this slick suit on and he's being kind of condescending, but he's, it's deference to authority, I think too. Like no eye contact isn't so weird in a culture where you shouldn't be looking at But he always has trouble with that, including in some key moments. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, but you're right. So I I think there's another scene of him jerking off. Looking at the tower again. Looking at the tower again. Yeah. Yeah. He's like, that's my dick or something. I don't know. Like it's a- <laughs> Oh, I didn't even think of that. That's good. Um, a little tip that also calls back the f- opening segment. Don't leave your ringer on when you're jerking off. <laughs> Another interruption. Seriously. Uh, that's, that's exactly why I don't like those sounds in faculty meetings. It reminds you, know? you of when you forgot to turn your ringer off. Yeah. Uh, So we haven't said this, but like he gets these strange calls and he's already gotten a few of these. And it's always somebody who just hangs up or something happens, but you never hear a voice. In this case, it's actually her, although her voice sounds distorted and a little fractured in some way. And she's in, I forget where she is. Is she in Kenya? Nairobi. Nairobi. I think, yeah. yeah. And she's had to stay there for a while, but she asks him to pick her up from the airport she finally got a flight out and he's of course very excited <laughs> yeah you'll never guess what i was doing when you called <laughs> yeah <laughs> right yeah. exactly so there's that right. element and again you start to wonder like did he imagine that right like uh it's pretty coincidence there's a lot of coincidences but one of them would be that she would finally get through right as he's almost but not quite uh, ready to splooge <laughs> on her window uh, <laughs> so this is rough when he goes to the airport who has not experienced oh, this kind of thing uh, you know? uh, it's just heartbreak there's a genuine look of just like innocent joy as he sees her coming out of customs he runs to greet her and then behind her is Ben played by Stephen Yon Yon I think yeah uh, this is shot so well, I wanted to say, like, when, you know, if you don't recognize Stephen Young immediately, 
he's in the background acting like any other traveler yeah. and uh Junsu's excited and then like his movements just sort of like encroach yeah. and pretty soon it's just like the, the hard realization that this guy is with yeah. her yep and yeah. that's what seems to be uh clear it's kind of dawning on him and he just doesn't know it's a really tough beat to have your expectations and that like a lot of these things are things are just within his grasp but then they vanish like right before he goes to to grab it and this is yeah. kind of one of those <laughs> right. things um I, why do you think she asked him to pick her up i don't know i so I think that Ben might not have said anything. I Like, my headcanon is that she said, oh, I have a friend who can pick us up. And he was like, cool. And we don't know the extent to which they've been together either, or even if they have no. been together, probably. But, like, she's yeah. clearly sexually active with her, like, storage uh, drawer of condoms. <laughs> right. uh, but, like, still. But, yeah, but we never really know what the, what deal, the deal is. What the deal is with them at that point. Yeah, the story pretty much says ex explicitly it was she had a boyfriend. Yeah, but uh, it's not clear yeah, here. But this, no. By the way, Stephen Young, like, I love this guy. I think he's amazing. He's so good in this. He's so good in this. He was in Sorry to Bother You. He was in The Walking Dead for a, a long he time. He was in that. Did you watch Beef? The a Netflix show? Uh, I don't think so, no. He's good in that. No. It's not, it's great. Yeah. Like, you could see it or not, but uh, he's very good in it. I think he's phenomenal in this. He's kind of perfect. He's perfect. I read an interview with him talking about the process, and he was saying that the director chose him specifically because he thought he would be good because he's American, right? If you, you've seen him in all this other stuff, you know that he's, yeah. he's clearly American, um, but raised with South Korean parents. And seems to speak the language like a, a native here but the director chose him because he knew that with his american demeanor like his physicality that that really set him as, like apart from koreans just in gestures and just the way in which you comport yourself physically that it would add to a kind of a weird uncanniness about his character yeah. who spoke korean but didn't seem to belong nonetheless in that yeah. world yeah. Seemed like almost like floating above the world. Yeah. Yeah. She says she's hungry and he says he knows the best tripe stew in Seoul. And then they have what I think is another key scene, right? Like at this restaurant, yeah. she is talking about her experiences and the great hunger dance. And it starts out kind of in that manic pixie dream girl Oh, like she she's so full of life and just creativity. Like she's the writer, really. Like she's picking up on all these details. But then it gets it just turns dark. Uh when she talks about being in yeah. this parking lot and the sunset, and then she realized that she was at the end of the world and she wanted to vanish. She said, I wish I could disappear as if I never existed. Another thing that will come back. That's a line that will come back over yeah. and over again. And it's it's there's a trajectory to that. There's like, oh, this is so cool. This is my dream girl. Like, look at it. She's just taken this exotic trip, and now she's describing like something that other people would never think to pick up. But then she starts crying, and and you see her loneliness and her despair. First of all, this actress, John Jong So. Uh, sorry, I'm butchering it. Um, it's her first fucking movie. Oh my god, it's crazy. Yeah. 
And she is doing that, like, yeah, taking you through this emotional sort of journey. And she, as she describes the, seeing the sunset, and then as it's, it sets, turns all these colors, and then finally turns dark. And she thought of dying, and she doesn't want to die, but like she wish she had never existed. And she's just breaking down emotionally. Yeah. And it's like this intimate moment between Jong Su and Jaime, but then like you're just rudely taken out. <laughs> In one of the video essays, they did a thing where they. They, they talked about that. And then there's a shot and Stephen Young's character is just in between them. So he's literally uh, framed in the yeah. shot as the thing that's present, so preventing good. them from having this intimate moment. And then he says, one of many psycho lines that he's going to say uh, in this movie, he says, it's fascinating seeing people cry. So, yeah. <laughs> it's just, so fucking psychopathy. And he says, I've never cried he's like sure maybe when i was a baby i guess but i don't think i've ever been sad it's like maybe i've been sad i don't know but if i've not yeah. cried i don't know if it's real sadness again this question of yeah. like what's real and what's not what's pantomime is that just pantomime sadness so she falls asleep as she is wont to do and he goes and pays for it and then does a really dick move of just having a friend bring his fancy Porsche to take him home. I mean, it's not a dick move, but he didn't, like, it's clearly a surprise. And here is, I think, like, a key scene. They're outside. He's got her luggage and his luggage in his weird pickup, like, beat-up, like, 60s pickup truck or whatever the fuck it is. And Ben says, should I uh, take you home? Do you want a, a ride home? And he, he kind of looks at Jung Soo as he's saying that. And Jung Soo, he doesn't say anything, right, uh, for yeah. a beat. And then he's like, well, I, like it's almost like he just gives up. He's like, well, I guess I have a long drive anyway. And then he takes her suitcase out. She hasn't said anything at this point. Right. And there's this really moving exchange between the two of them. She is looking at him almost like, begging him like just say i'll take you home and yeah, he right doesn't do like he doesn't yeah. he clearly wants to there's nothing more that he wants in the world than to do that but he doesn't and like i feel it like he wants her to say no i'll go home with him like he's not he has pride you know and he's also throughout this he has like this kind smile on his face like you know he's burnt he's just dying inside but he's being polite he's what he doesn't want to impose like he's he smiles a lot at ben you know he's really like going out of his way to be nice to ben and not seem like he's a dick ben has already given us and tell me if you agree he's already given us these vibes that these are to his latest play things i think yeah. so i mean like he has a lot of sociopathic kind of lines yeah. already he's in, but never overtly like cruel or violent or anything like that but no. it's almost like what you imagine like a silicon valley like <laughs> tech bro billionaire or something like that would would say like just has trouble understanding normal human emotions uh that that don't involve yeah. trying to like live to be 180 years old <laughs> right but unlike the stereotype of those guys he's also charming yeah. like you don't like That's he right. has this I, I think he's a handsome guy he's his smile is is disarming he's very relaxed he's not like elon musk like who has his yeah, own right. like kind of weird awkwardness like he doesn't have that 
He doesn't seem like he's trying to make a good impression on people. Never gets worked up for sure. Never. So I really think that's a key scene. I remember that the first time I saw it as even more like, why doesn't he like she wants him to and he just doesn't it's like there's some like he's already conceded the victory of her to this guy um just i guess because of his wealth and suaveness and his awkwardness yeah you know it feels like he can't compete like if if like that's who she's going after like what does he have like a beat-up pickup truck like a one cow yeah Poor well, guy. It's interesting. Like before she went to Africa, she was calling all the shots. She was just like accepting that he was like that and just like, okay, you called me ugly. What do you think now? Let's have sex. I'll get the condom. I'll invite you out for drinks. Now she, it's like she's reached a point where she's not willing to do that anymore. Maybe because. I mean, this guy's rich and... Yeah, yeah I, I don't think that's unfair to say that like she sees some possibility there in terms of her financial... Yeah. So the next key scene, she calls him though. She calls him and they invite him, I guess, to just have a, to a cafe or something like that. Yeah. Uh, so, so he's with both of them at this point. Again, like we've all had this. Where you're the third, <laughs> just third. You're wheel, the third yeah. wheel. You like the person. You have a feeling that like the girl would like you more, and maybe even right now likes you more. But there's nothing you can do. He does this thing with the stone, like in her hand, that's making her suffer, and like it turns out to be just a trick, like not even a very good trick. No. <laughs> but here's where he talks about how. It's just fun. Like, I'll do anything for fun. Everything he says is like psycho shit. Then they go to his house and he's a great cook. Um, He's got a really nice house. You know, like, honestly, I found myself the character of Ben on the second rewatch, not disliking him that much. And I think there's one reading of this movie where this guy is like, fine. Totally. (laughs) 100%. (laughs) You know, he says a couple weird chilling things, but... Um, you know, that's just how he is. You know, he's not, he's harmless. Yeah, but enough ambiguity where where he's just like a, a guy. And he's been co- always polite to Jung Soo. And, uh, but here he's saying like, uh, so do you cook Jung Soo? He's like, well, I got to cook for myself. So yeah, he's like, oh, I love cooking. He's like, it's like making an offering to myself and consuming yeah. it. Like humans do to God. <laughs> right. So he's, it's a whiff of that narcissism that uh, often goes hand in hand with psychopathy. Yeah, um, yeah. Like more than a whiff, even. Like he's calling himself <laughs> more a than a whiff there and making offerings. To right, him. and here's where he asks what I want to ask you. What is a metaphor, yes. Tamler? <laughs> like I think that's, again, it's this reflection, pantomime, uh, like this is the key question of the whole movie. Like, and he, I, I think Jung Su doesn't answer, right? Like he doesn't say what a metaphor no, is. He doesn't. So Jung Su says it's a metaphor and Jaime is like, what's a metaphor? Yeah. And he just never, he never yeah. answers. The answer is a metaphor is like a simile. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> um, yeah. And I was reading something interesting about, and, and in this discussion, I've already got like feel cooler about this, about how films, stories, whatever, are are often metaphors and how Li Chang Dong explicitly sort of treating this as a metaphor and thinks, I think it was a quote of his about talking about Murakami's writing being a metaphor. And whatever the author of this article was saying was like, not all writing is aiming at that, right? So the Faulkner story, 
maybe it's a metaphor or not, but it's way, way more about the specific situations of this. Like the interest is in just the details of the right. story, right? Like it's not so clearly like I am trying to reflect something deep. It's about not more heads. It's more like I'm telling this story. Like, yeah, yeah. Right, right. Which again, like it's, of course it's all like it could be metaphoric, but this is just way more um, knowingly trying to convey truth through metaphor. And it really does feel like uh, to me, a metaphor of that, the light shine bouncing off, like you were saying, the light bouncing off the tower is truth represented through the lights of a movie, yeah. right? This is, he is bouncing reality through the silver screen or whatever we call it, the lights of a, of a cinema screen. And we are viewing some truth this right. way. And sometimes weirdly that bounced light can be more true than the real yeah. light. Yeah. And also I think is this question of when you see something in a movie, like it, sometimes the metaphor is intentional on the part of the creator. And sometimes it is something that we bring, like we see it yeah. uh, as a metaphor for something that we can relate to that's resonant with whatever we're going through. And that's the thing I think that uh, Jung Su doesn't know is like when he says some of this stuff, like even just the the greenhouse burning uh, conversation, the central question of the mystery of the movie is, was he being metaphorical or does he really burn down, literally burn down green greenhouses? So that's <laughs> yeah. like the key question of the whole movie. And like, you know, so there's also the question of whether something is a metaphor or not. That gets thrown right. out there. Totally. And this is, I just got, got to say this. I have seen zero Lee Chang Dong movies yeah. before, but clearly this is somebody at like the height of yeah. their skills. Right. Totally. You know? I have not, I don't even know, like I love this movie so much. Like I said, it might be the best, my favorite movie of the 21st century and I haven't seen zero other of his movies ever. Right. Um, so I got to do that. Yeah. Ah, I, I, I'm surprised. I thought for yeah, sure, yeah. like I'd be lecturing. You're going to think less of me for having admitted that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we get here like a, another critical scene. He goes, uh, Su goes to the bathroom in Ben's amazing apartment. And for the sake of time, I'm not talking about how awesome his apartment is. And he sees women's makeup and women's jewelry, like trinket jewelry, like, you know, not the jewelry of rich people, yeah. <laughs> like charm bracelets and beads and stuff, um, which is weird, yeah. right? And already, the first time I'm watching this, I'm getting vibes of this is, first of all, he's showing it to us for a reason. Second of all, it's not hard to think of this as being mementos yeah. of some sort, whether it's just because of his high body count and like some weird, but yeah, like, like a token, you know, he's keeping, yeah. yeah, exactly. He's keeping something in a way that doesn't but you feel. You could look at right. it. It's like the cat. You could look at it as sinister, like he's killing them or just like, he, or he has a sister, not yeah. even a sister. Just like he, he, he fucks a lot of girls and likes to keep something of theirs. Like yeah. every time, like it's not like sh he's not killing them. He's just uh, right. keeping a memento. Right. But I've been saying even more, it might even be right. more. It could just like, be, yeah. Dumb, like, his sister yeah. and It could friends. be his ex-girlfriend stuff. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. he's looking for it too. Like you don't like, I yeah. like to, like I right. hope he was looking for Vicodin or something like that. <laughs> but he's already like uh, trying to find something incriminating about this guy. Um, one of the things that's interesting in this scene he asks uh, Jaime f uh, where the bathroom is. He doesn't ask him. And she yeah. asks uh, Ben. And 
it's not clear whether she is pretending that she hasn't <laughs> been there. I didn't even notice or that. Or whether because right. doesn't he doesn't Ben smile yeah, a little, little bit? bit. Yeah, like, yeah, exactly. So it's like even that uh, is unclear. Are they? Is she for him pretending that she hasn't been in that house before? She she definitely says things to indicate that she hasn't been in the house, and this is the but yeah. yeah. So they go out. They take him out. They take. Uh, Jong Su out to meet with his friends. And this is another thing that I think you can relate to. Like, I have a memory of one of these kind of triangle things where I thought I was going on on a date and instead I was going <laughs> to something with like her and this other guy. And the worst part was the friends. And now yeah. you're just tagging along in uh, something that is just not at all for you. And again, he's not like right. Ben is not being a dick about it. He's being actually fairly welcoming and introducing him and not trying to make fun of him in any way. But he feels so out of place in this restaurant. And it's a key scene also because uh, for what Jaime does. But I, I, I really yeah. felt the isolation, the anger, the just humiliation of what he's going through at that point. Yeah. And also like just the feeling of not belonging. These people, like he's college educated. It's not like he's a country right. bumpkin, right? <clears throat> we know that, but this is just a different class of people. And a kind of like a, a world-weary sophistication and kind of knowingness that even the high me stuff is not flying with them. Right. You know, they're right. being polite about and she it. She doesn't seem to realize that they're clearly kind of like mocking. She doesn't. Uh, yeah. No. Yeah. He does, I think. He does, which is what makes it sad, yeah. right? He's like, don't you know what they're thinking yeah. of you? You know, And I think he's already said to her, that he's the great Gatsby. Yes, that's right. And that Korea is full of, South Korea is full of Gatsby's, which is yeah. interesting because Gatsby is this mysterious figure that has money that, you know, like, and m that money or just the aura is what gets him, you know, Daisy being attracted to him and the resentments from others that, that come with that. But Gatsby himself is like almost an outs like self-made and an outsider, if I remember, who like is doing this for his own kind of vindictive. Yeah. I don't know. I've never read it, but I think that's right. You get yeah. the sense that Ben is not self-made, but I don't know why you like I have that sense. Maybe not. I got that sense. And this will come up later when we like uh, maybe talking about more interpretation. I got that sense because. I think when he goes to church with his family, like they're clearly yeah, rich. That's right. Like, yeah, if we're to believe that it is his family, this is like a bubber class. Family. But as she's talking about the great hunger in front of this crowd and the like her experiences, like you said, they're not impressed. They're getting a little tired of it, but they're being barely polite. But uh, he does his first yawn. And one of the things, yeah. I hadn't seen this movie in like four years, but one thing I remember is that yawn and his <laughs> reaction afterwards. That was like <laughs> seared in my memory. And it's like you already know the first time you're watching it, oh, she might be fucked. Yeah. On the other hand, I watch it and like if it, it is such a necker cube of... Yeah. Of the way that he yawns is so well done at at conveying what you m might genuinely be. This guy's had a long day, but he wants to like, and he wants to not mm -hmm. show 
like show that he's tired, but he can't help it. So he's fighting it back <laughs> or it's like, whoa, fucking red flag. But he know? also gives this look. So it's from the point of view, clearly of John Sue. John Sue, yeah. He gives this look after he yawns to him like, oh, God, you know, like she's uh, <laughs> she doesn't know her audience yeah. here. Kind of like, right. you know, and again, that could just be like a nice welcoming thing. We're both realizing this is how Jaime gets when she talks about the great hunger. Yeah. But it could also be she's the next greenhouse. <laughs> right. The one other thing I want to say about this is um, she asks the friends to clap. To give oh, up, yeah. they're like, yeah, dance, do the dance, <laughs> yeah. and and that would so be they. Annoying, she's like, come on, clap like this. One, she does a pretty complex yeah. rhythm <laughs> when she claps, and two, they just like stop clapping, and she keeps dancing, yeah. and or, and it's only her feet after a while, and we're gonna get a bit of a callback yeah. to her continuing to dance after after the music has stopped. <laughs> yes, yes, that's that's right. There's gonna be a uh, an echo of that. Yeah. Then they go to a yeah. club. Just like blasting right. house music, he gets the fuck out like I would in that clip. <laughs> yeah. Okay, holy shit! It is very late here. We are well over an hour into this discussion, and we haven't even gotten to what I think might be an all-time great scene. We don't want to rush it, so let's wrap it up here and do this in a two-part episode. You know, this is a movie that totally deserves a deep dive. It's like Blood Meridian. Sometimes you gotta. Spread it out over two episodes, even if you didn't think you were going to. So that's it from us right now. Join us next time on Very Bad Wizard. Just a very bad wizard.